Welcome to You, Me and from Football Whispers. My name's Tom Bedell and this week I'm joined by Juventus fan Adam Digby, an author of Juventus, A History in Black and White. Adam, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Tom. How are you? So many legends have played for the Bianconeri in the 90s, but we're today we're focusing on probably the greatest, Alessandro Del Piero. Adam, when I say his name, what's your immediate kind of reaction? What does that stir up within you? It's Juventus, just in a nutshell, really. I, I've followed Juve all my life. I'm 42 years old and really grew up watching Del Piero do the same while he was playing for Juve from the, the story that we'll tell from him being the youngster when he first arrived to, to when he left in 2012. Um, it's mm. it's just that say, that whole story of essentially my fandom of, of Juventus runs alongside Del Piero's own story. So it's, it's everything to me, really. Del Piero joined Juventus in 1993 for 5 billion lira at the time from Padova. What did we what did we know of him in those early days, Adam? He was a really, really coveted young player um, from when he first broke into the Padova first team, um, 1992, I think. Um, and all of the big clubs in Serie A were chasing him. They all wanted to get him. Obviously, Juve did that. Um, he's, he started to play in goal when he was really, really young. Um, but he always wanted to play outfield. His brother, who actually played in defence for Sampdoria, um, pushed it with their mother to allow him to play out of out of goal. Um, and there's a, a really cool story about when he was really young. He used to practice playing football by himself um, with with the family garage door open, with the car just outside the garage, and he would curl the ball over the car into the garage and hit the light switch to turn off the light. And that was how he practised. And I, I think that kind of, uh, if you watch Del Piero's free kicks, you can almost imagine him still aiming for the light switch, can't you? Well, it was Giovanni Trapattoni who was manager of Juve at the time and he was insistent that the young Del Piero should be part of the senior side, even though he featured for the Primavera and won the under-20 Scudetto in 94. And he made his debut in Serie A against Foggia in September 93, scoring his first goal in the next game against Reggiana and followed that with a hat-trick on his debut against Parma. It, quite a sort of introduction to the first team, uh, very much justifying the hype, I think. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely so. An immediate impact. And in, in a team that was really packed with with top, top stars, um, Juve won the UEFA Cup in 1993. So this is coming so on the back of that as the 93-94 the season gets underway. Um, Trapattoni had come back for his second spell obviously he was at UV in the late 70s early 90s when they were uh, late 70s early 80s when they were dominating Europe um, and then he came back after a real lean spell in the, in the early 90s and, and really catapulted this team back to the, the dominant force that we remember as the, as the decade progressed but, but for Del Piero to, to really come into that team and really carve out a niche for himself really as an impact sub and a player who would play against the lesser teams, really, in that those early years. Um, it, it really speaks volumes about how good he was and how important he would become in the future because to, to kind of to look at the other attacking players that Juve had at that time, uh, to, to, to make even to get some playing time was really difficult. And to see that Juve, throughout my lifetime, the only player who's really come from the youth team uh, owned by Juve and, and to make it into the first team, really, is Claudio Marchisio. And before that, it was Del Piero. It really has been a, a lean, lean um, 
spell for the club over the last, mm. what we're we talking now, 30 years. Uh, nobody really gets into the Juve first team. We've seen that with Moises Keane recently. He, he gets a look in, but then he's sold on. And, he, and Juve really sell those players to, to make profit for the first team. And Del Piero really booked that trend because it's really a, a long-standing thing. With in terms of Del Piero and the kind of contemporaries he had at that time at Juventus, who was he up against for a place in the first team? Because as you say, it was a squad packed with world-class names. Yeah, obviously the, the starting trident in attack was... Uh, Luca Viale, Fabrizio Ravanelli, and Roberto Baggio. So to to be getting any sort of any yeah. sort of start, any regular playing time um, with those three ahead of him, and Trapattoni really only played two of the three for most of his time while he was there. So it made it even more difficult. It was usually Viale and Baggio, with Ravanelli being on the bench as well. So he really was far down the pecking order, but he was still managing to get in the game, still managing to get goals and still having Trapattoni insist that he was part of the first team rather than traipsing all around the north of Italy playing for the youth team because that that wouldn't have been a surprise really at that time. Well, it was Baggio's injury against Padova in uh, in that November that kind of really seemed to give Del Piero a run in the side. How big a impact did that have in him being able to kind of establish himself and play alongside Ravanelli and Viali. It was huge, really, because, as I said, Trapattoni was only playing two. Lippi came, and Lippi decided that if you got the three of them in the team, Baggio, Ravanelli and um, Viali, that with the work ethic of Viali and Ravanelli, they could still make that work, playing like a 4-3-3. Obviously, very narrow attack, more 4-3-1-2, I suppose, but... And then, as you say, Baggio got injured, um, which allowed Del Piero to step in. And the team was better. They they clicked better. They worked better off each other. Del Piero did a lot more running than Baggio did. Um, He did a lot more tracking back than Baggio did. (laughs) And and it really did bring that that work ethic and mentality of Marcello Lippi. Um, It it galvanised that and made it better. And, And Del Piero was just a better fit with Lippi and then obviously as we saw Juve would go on to have a really successful season and become in a position where they could sell Roberto Baggio which probably even three, four months earlier probably right up until until Baggio got injured it was unthinkable I mean Baggio was the, the world player of the year in 1993 and here we are 18 months later and he's being replaced by a a kid who cost next to nothing from Padova, you know Is it fair to say that Del Piero's emergence and, and, and how well he acquitted himself ultimately accelerated the, the sale of Baggio to Milan or would that have happened regardless? I, I don't think it would have happened at all. I think Juve would have kept Baggio. They would have had that, those three. Um, and I, I, it's hard to know how that would have affected the team moving forwards, but it, it, it really did allow Juve to sell Baggio, invest elsewhere in the team, make some more acquisitions. And then that in turn catapulted them from being just a, a team who were in fairness, before that 94-95 season, they were struggling to to even make a dent in the dominance of AC Milan. As we know, they were winning the European Cup and winning the Scudetto at, at ease, really, in those early 90 years with with Arrigo uh, Sarki and then Fabio Capello. And, and Juve broke through largely because Baggio got injured and Del Piero came into the team. And, and really, the team took a huge leap forward. And I, I don't think for a minute that Juve would have sold that job without that happening. But they did the double, as I think you've already said, in 94-95, winning the Scudetto and beating Palmer in the Coppa Italia final. Uh, and as we know, of course, 
several Champions, uh, three Champions League finals in a row in the late 90s. How good was this team and how much does that speak for the quality of Del Piero that he was able to entrench himself in the team at such a young age as well? I think it's hard to argue against that Juve team. is just the team of the 90s, isn't it? We talk about yeah. that great Milan team, but that was really late 80s. Look at the early, the mid-1990s and late-1990s, and it's hard to see beyond that that Euro team, and we'll come on to discuss some of this later, but the three Champions League finals, only missing out on a fourth because of the phenomenal Manchester United comeback that inspired by Roy Keane when they were overall 3-0 down. I think 2-0 from the first leg and then a goal at Old Trafford as well. Uh, a goal in the second leg as well, sorry, to, to put them 3-0 up on the night. Uh, and it it really was such a dominant team. Obviously, we just said they got to the UEFA Cup final in 1995 and then three Champions League finals. They, they swept everybody before them, didn't they? They, were, they, they, won, they won the Champions League and then signed Zinedine Zidane. I think that probably speaks to how good that Juve team was. But yeah, and, and, and really you look at Del Piero's role in that as we'll come on to discuss it season by season. He, he was the, the key man throughout all of it, really. He, he was the... the, the not the driving force, but certainly the, the the ultimate difference maker in so many matches. And the, just that touch of quality, whether it was in this early time that we're talking about now where he was playing as a as a trequartista behind Ravanelli and Viali or, or later when he pushed up to be a, a second striker behind Inzaghi or Trezeguet. He was just so vital to everything that Juve were trying to do. He was, he, they, they won the ball in midfield, give it to Del Piero. They, they lost the ball in attack. Del Piero and Viali are pressing to try and win it back. It, everything stemmed from that, that attacking trident. And Del Piero, obviously, as we've already said, made the difference from Roberto Baggio. And, and his quality really did make an impact throughout the next few seasons. He was voted fourth in the 95 Ballon d'Or standings. What was his kind of, what was his kind of uh, reputation standing within European football at this stage? just a few years into his senior career. Yeah, I think that coming forth in 1995, that seemed a little bit early to me, maybe a little bit premature. Mm. I think you might compare it to maybe Mbappe while he was still at um, Monaco. You know, he's he's there, he's got all the tools, but you really need to see it at a higher level. As we said, they, yes, they won the, the, the league and the cup, but they lost in the UEFA Cup final. They hadn't actually done anything on a wider scale yet. He'd not done anything for Italy. You're talking about him being the fourth best player in the world. I think even for me as a, a massive, massive Juve fan, I think that was a little <laughs> bit early and, a, and a, 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 a touch premature for sure. Well, we'll leave it there for the first part and we'll be back very shortly to discuss the late 90s and those Champions League finals. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> Welcome back to You Me and today we're discussing Juventus great Alessandro Del Piero and we're joined by the man who quite literally wrote the book on Juventus, Adam Digby. At the start of the 95-96 season, Del Piero was awarded the number 10 shirt, which um, had been kind of synonymous with Baggio prior to that, but this was the first season that Serie A had squad numbers. How significant was it that he was the man entrusted to to wear that shirt week in, week out? It was it was huge, I think. Mean- you look at the, the history of the Juventus number 10 from Omar Sivore to Michel Platini to um, Laudrup, then to Baggio. And uh, during the, the previous seasons, while Roberto Baggio was still there, 
when he didn't play and Del Piero was the number 10, it always felt like it was still Badjo's shirt. As soon as Badjo came back in the team, he'd be the number 10. Del Piero would wear a different number. Um, but when Badjo left in nine, the summer of 95 to go to Milan and then squad numbers came in and the, it was given to Del Piero, it really was a huge deal. It's To, to be the Juventus number 10 is a, a, a massive, massive honour for for any player and Del Piero knew that he played alongside one of those great players for those first couple of seasons and then for him to be the number 10 I, I think it, it really was significant and I think as we'll come on to discuss it really saw Del Piero take his game to a to another level where I, I said earlier that being fourth in Ballon d'Or was a little bit premature I think he kind of uh, made sure that it was deserved the next time around. Well, he certainly lived up to the kind of billing that that number brings. Uh, although Juventus missed out in the race of Scudetto to Milan, he set up Gianluca Viali's winner in the Supercoppa Italiana final and played a crucial role in that 95-96 Champions League win as Juve reclaimed the trophy for the first time in 11 years. Just talk to us about that Champions League campaign because it's obviously... The last time that they won the tournament, despite going to a lot of finals between then and the present day, and, and, and his kind of role in that. It was a real coming of age for Del Piero that season. Juve really gave up quite early on the Scudetto race. You look back at the table and it's quite close, but they, they really did kind of focus all their efforts on winning the Champions League because that, that's the hallmark of a great team, isn't it? And, and we know that more than ever now as Juventus fans. They, they had a, a relatively... Uh, easy way through the, the first group stage. They only lost once. They had Dortmund, Stoyer and Glasgow Rangers. They they took care of business there and made it through quite easily. They got into the knockout stage. They played Real Madrid, which was difficult. But then they only played non in the semi-final um, and they rested Del Piero in one of those games, which probably led to him not finishing a little bit better in the, the league to be the leading scorer. Um, and they, they really made tough going of that. They, they lost the second leg. Uh, and it really was a, a nervous, nervous time for Juve. And they already had a history of struggling in Europe. We, we mentioned before that they lost the 95 UEFA Cup final to Parma. They'd lost mm -hmm. a, a Champions League, Champions League Euro European Cup final in 1983 to, to Hamburg. And, and the, the signs of those uh, struggles in Europe in the biggest, biggest matches really did come, come to, the, to the fore in that non-game. Uh, that was much closer than anyone remembers. And then obviously on to the final. Uh, and Del Piero was really a, a, a bit part player in the final. He'd been very good throughout the campaign, but he's kind of pushed into the background by Ajax. They, they marshaled him well. We know that team now, all those names in that Ajax team are, are household names, aren't they? They're legendary players as we look back on it. But they were, they were a young team in 95, but obviously they'd won it before in 95. Then in 96, they were still young, but they... They were very well organised. They did a really good job of, of marginalising Del Piero. And it, it was a really tense, tense final and a, a, a difficult ob obstacle to overcome for you as they as eventually won. 96, 97, they followed that up with the UEFA Super Cup, won the Intercontinental Cup, and Del Piero scored in both of those finals as well as being named man of the match in the latter. He was uh, the recipient of the Bravo Award for the best under-23 in Europe and again fourth in the Ballon d'Or voting. Juventus, of course, reached another Champions League final, but lost this time to Borussia Dortmund again. I think it's probably remembered as much as anything for Lars Ricken, isn't it, coming off the bench and scoring the, the lob. What might have been had Del Piero been fit to start that final? Because he was only a substitute in the event, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And I think it probably 
it, it could have made a difference, but again, being that there's a, that as there always seems to be with Del Piero, there's a, a, a very interesting story that we, when Juve won the Scudetto the week before the Champions League final, they over-celebrated, shall we say. And the, oh, right. <laughs> Carlo Ancelotti has, has spoken about he knew it. Marcello Lippi's spoken about he knew it. The, the team was apparently rather hungover when they took on Dortmund and they thought that that game would be quite easy because obviously they'd won it the year before. Then they walked to the Scudetto. Everything's going swimmingly well. And they got absolutely battered by Dortmund in that final. And I think it really was a bit of a wake-up call for them. But they, they, they definitely did uh, enjoy the Scudetto. And I think you also have to note that in the summer of 96, after winning the Champions League, Viali went to Chelsea and Ravanelli went to Middlesbrough. And I think that really made a difference. When you go from Gianluca Viali to Alan Boxic, no, no offence to Alan Boxic, but he's, he's hardly a, a great, great striker of the game, is he? And I think... It, the, the team struggled without those key veteran figures. And I think that the celebrating might have been cut a little bit shorter if, if Viali was still around to have his say as captain. But it, it, it definitely wasn't the same team. And I think that the team dipped a little bit. Del Piero being injured didn't help. And it, it might have been a different story if it had, if it had he been fit to start and not hung over. Was this a bit of a changing of the guard then? You, you mentioned the sales of Ravenelli and Viali, which I'd forgotten. Was this the kind of that with Baggio gone prior as well? Was this the kind of handing of the baton over to Del Piero at this point? It probably was, yeah. And I think he wasn't quite ready for it. Obviously, that first injury as well really set that back. Um, and we, as we'll see when we talk about the following season, he was much better. I think it was probably a year early to be losing Viali and Ravanelli, but Viali especially was out of contract and it was very difficult. Chelsea offered him a lot of money. Juve felt like they didn't really need him because they had other players including a very young Christian Vieira in 96-97. Uh, um, so, yeah, he he was very, very good, but I don't think he was quite ready to be a leader yet. And I think Juve lost too many leaders in one season to, to make up for the difference. And obviously that, that's then reflected in the, the premature and immature celebration of the Scudetto, I guess. And you mentioned, obviously, that he has a fantastic season the following year, 97-98, a career-best 21 goals in Serie A, top scorer in the Champions League as Juve reach another final, uh, nominated for the 97 FIFA World Player of the Year Award and the Ballon d'Or, which is becoming a, a regular occurrence at this point. Was this Del Piero at his peak for you or was there another period in time where he was actually better? I think with Del Piero, I think it's it's really strange and we'll, we'll come on to discuss it as we go along, but I think he's he's one of those rare players who had probably two peaks. And, and this, mm. is, this being the first one, I think that 97, 98, if, if you didn't watch Del Piero before the 98 World Cup, it's a very, very different player that we're talking about. He was, he was leaner, he was faster. Um, if you watch a lot of his goals from that season, he's, he's beating the last man and running onto passes, which is certainly something he wasn't doing um, probably post Euro 2000, definitely. Um, I, he was a, 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 a speedy playmaking trequartista and I don't think that's really the memory that a lot of people have of Del Piero um, mm. and he really was the best version of that was definitely that 97-98 season I think they, they had um, they had Zidane they had Pippo Inzaghi um, and Del Piero and Inzaghi in their first season together had a, a very good uh, relationship on and off the field they were excellent together 
Um, and Zidane came into the team and fitted in around Del Piero in that first season too, which is something else we'll discuss as we move on to the following seasons. But that that first season, I think it, it was it was the, definitely the very, very best of young Alessandro Del Piero, the running past defenders, the, the skill on the ball to beat a fullback, the, the um, guile to pick a pass from midfield and thread it through to the striker. He, he played a little bit more advanced because of the arrival of Zidane, who was in that first season at least pushed out into more of a, a left wing role, but with a license to drift infield when Juve had the ball. It was, it was a little bit different in later seasons. Um, but it, it, it was definitely for me the, the best of that first version of Del Piero. Just to tie up that run of Champions League finals, Del Piero scored a hat trick against Monaco in the semis, but. Uh, Juventus lost 1-0 to Real Madrid in the final with Del Piero not fit. Is it too simplistic to say that had he been fit, they might have got something out of that? In the, the 98 final, I think that's probably one of the two finals that Juve have lost where you think if it wasn't for X being missing, they probably would have won. I think that was a very poor it, pre-Galacticos Real Madrid, isn't it? 1998. Mm. It's, it's, it's not a very good Real Madrid team. Obviously, if they got to Champions League final, it's a good team, but it's not a great, great side as they would have been two or three years later um, when you've actually beat them to get to another Champions League final as we'll come on to. But <laughs> it, it, it wasn't the very best of Real Madrid. It was a game that Juve should have won even without Del Piero. They were very poor on the day, which is a, a common theme with Juve in Champions League finals, unfortunately. But I think with <laughs> Del Piero, especially that version of Del Piero, I think it would have been enough and they probably would have won. So I think when we talk about it's a regret that he didn't win again after 96, I think the first port of call after that has to be 98 because, yeah, I think if he's fit and ready to go, how he was at that time, I think they definitely would have won for me. And you mentioned it already, touching it already, but Del Piero obviously suffered a very serious injury in 98, 99, uh, a knee injury which ended his season in November. Without him, Juventus only finished sixth and reached the Champions League semi-finals, as you say, losing to Man United in phenomenal circumstances on their way to the triple. How, firstly, how reliant on uh, Del Piero were Juve at this point to kind of fall away as they did? And secondly, what was the the kind of impact on his uh, his game and his physique? Because there's the feeling that he kind of changed as a player a bit after this point, isn't there? He definitely did. I think to take the first question, how reliant we. Del Piero was Juve on Del Piero I think completely almost even though they had Zidane even though they had Inzaghi Del Piero was the one who made it tick he was there everything went through him before that first injury well second injury the the 98-99 one after the World Cup when he ended his season Juve finished sixth he the lack of his goals the lack of his invention it it forced um, Paolo Ancelotti who'd come in as manager who would come in as manager after that to change the way that Juve played because Lippi had built his team around Del Piero, just as he had around Baggio before Baggio's injury. Um, and without him, it, it kind of fell to pieces. They moved Zidane into that role behind the strikers, which obviously he's absolutely fine with that. But then obviously you don't have another Zidane to replace on the left. And Juve tried to use Thierry Henry there, um, which, mm. which didn't really help at all playing uh, Thierry Henry as a winger. Um, <laughs> they still made a profit. He went to Arsenal and became quite good, as, as I remember. But um, <laughs> it, 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 Juve really struggled. They, they really did um, 
find it impossible to to win without LPR. I mean, you, the idea of Juve finishing six when they're they're that dominant is is like them finishing six today. You know, it's it's yeah. it's almost impossible to see. And and for one man to make all that difference really shows how how good Del Piero was in those late 90s years and it really is a shame I mean, he, he missed out on showing his best at that 98 World Cup which in the build-up in Italy at least was all about Del Piero versus, versus Ronaldo for who was the best player in the world and unfortunately we didn't really get to see either of them in that tournament and it, it was still a fantastic tournament but I think it could have been so much better if both of them had been available to, to play there and I think the, the change in his body is, is evident. If you go back and look at pictures of Del Piero in 98 and, beyond, and before compared to, to 2000 and beyond, he's a lot thicker. He grew a lot. There's obviously all the rumours about doping around him and Viale and Zidane. And, and a lot of that is, it's kind of the way people talk about Manchester United in England. They're always finding a way to cheat. And, and it's, it, hey, it's been proven that, that Juve at that time were giving their players paracetamol for, for no reason at all. They were... They were taking supplements that weren't banned but would later be banned, which if that's, yeah. if, you know, if that's doping, then that's doping. But it, they didn't break the rules to do it. And, but the, the change in Del Piero's physique is, is undeniable. And I think the, 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 the saddest thing as a, as a Juve fan is as you, as you look on the next couple of seasons, which in the story of Del Piero you would skip over, but the, mm. the 98, 99, 2000 seasons, which are coincidentally Carlo Ancelotti's two years in charge, Juve were really poor. They, they got knocked out of the Champions League in the semi-final, as you said. They only qualified for the UEFA Cup the following season. They actually won the Intertoto Cup with Carlo Ancelotti, mm. which is the, the trophy that he won. And, and when Del Piero came back in those, those first year and a half, he struggled to score from open play for months. He, they, they upset Zidane with trying to push him back to the wing. Um, they upset Pippo Inzaghi was the leading scorer in the Intertoto Cup that season. I think he had about nine goals in five games. He was phenomenal. But Del Piero came back and suddenly it was Del Piero's team again. Pippo Inzaghi got his nose pushed out of joint. They went through a full season where, and Italian media being Italian media, believe me, they've gone and scrutinised every single minute of every single match. Del Piero and Inzaghi didn't share a pass between them for a year. Um, <laughs> and, and they grew to hate each other and Zidane was kind of the, the the fall guy for it all because he couldn't perform at his best when you had two strikers in front of him who didn't like each other and, and that team really just sadly kind of fell to pieces with, with Ancelotti at the helm and it led to some really serious changes for Juve and, and a, a real change in how Del Piero played which we'll, we'll come on to as we move on to, to the later seasons well, we're going to do exactly what you said there, actually, and kind of skip over the next couple of seasons. So we'll take a short break and then we'll be back. Welcome back to Yumian. Today we're joined by author Adam Digby to discuss Juventus legend Alessandro Del Piero. Um, as we touched on prior to the break, a couple of fairly inglorious seasons for Juventus. Uh, 2001-2002 Del Piero is named captain how significant was that in, in the scheme of things and, and how, what did it mean to him to become captain it was huge again we, we spoke earlier about the significance of getting the number 10 shirt but to, to become the captain as well I think it, it, it was kind of happening already because Antonio Conte was in and out of the team you had plenty of other options in midfield Deschamps, Palos, Luzer, Edgar Davids players you might have heard of 
Um, so Antonio Conte was actually the club captain prior to that season, but he wasn't playing regularly enough to keep the armband. And, and giving it to Del Piero was a, a hugely symbolic move. He, he, he actually received the armband before the first game of the season on the field from Gian Piero Boni Perotti, the, the club vice president. Um, his name will come up again shortly, but he was the vice president whose last act as the actual vice president of the club was to sign Del Piero from Padova. Um, but he came back in a, an honorary role in the following years. And before that season started, he came out on the field. Del Piero came out for the warm-ups without the armband. Boni Perotti brought it onto the pitch and, and put it round Del Piero's arm. And the two of them had a, the first of two, uh, three very special moments that we, we can discuss as we move along. But the, that first one, you can see it in Del Piero's face, what it means to him. He knew who Boni Perotti was. Uh, a Juve legend who we'll discuss later, uh, and a, a real a real boost to Del Piero's confidence after the hardships of those previous seasons. And the, the, the I, I talk about the, the Ancelotti era as if it was a complete disaster. The guy finished second twice in Serie A. You know, that's that's quite good going, but, but for Juve, it's not good enough. And, and he was gone off to Milan, and Marcello Lippi came back for his second spell, and and the first real act was to give Del Piero the arm, but it was massive. It, it really, really was. And it, it catapulted Del Piero back to back to his best, even though it was a different best, shall we say? Well, he formed a rather impressive partnership with another uh, forward by this point, David Trezeguet, and with Pavel Nedved kind of acting as a playmaker in behind those two. Juventus won their 26th Scudetto by a single point over... Roma and Inter, it was a hell of a title race, Adam. Just fill in those who might not remember what uh, happened. It was absolutely surreal, the final day. Inter played away at Lazio. Um, and Lazio's fans brought, because they have a, a, a twinning with Inter, or they did until this day, they, they brought banners to the, to the stadium cheering for Inter because there was a danger that if Inter lost to Lazio, Roma could steal the title. Um, mm. because they were only two points behind Inter and they had a game against um, Palmer, I think. And so it, Lazio's fans started out the day um, wanting Inter to win and cheering Inter's good play, cheering Inter's goals, uh, cheering good passes from Inter and, and booing anything that their own team did positively, which was <laughs> absolutely crazy. And then Juve went ahead um, against Udinese which, which really saw Inter then collapse and Lazio come back. And Lazio won 4-2 against Inter. Hector Coupe's Inter, um, who had great success with Valencia, but really struggled in Milan. Um, and then Roma went and won as well, so Inter finished third. And it, it really is crazy to, to see on the final day a team who had a, a clear advantage in the title race, whose opponents wanted them to win so that their bitterest rivals couldn't um, overhaul them at the top of the table. And they ended up finishing third. It was crazy, and Antonio Conte on TV afterwards absolutely lost his mind, complaining about Inter, which in hindsight now is the Inter manager, is quite funny. Um, but the, the year before, Juve had lost the title on the final day in Perugia, um, and Inter, had, Inter uh, sorry, Roma had won the league on the final day, Juve lost. And uh, Marco Materazzi, who would go on to play for Inter, was a Perugia defender, and apparently he gave Conte... Um, a few quiet words, shall we say, after that match. And Conte, after this final day, went on TV and was laughing because Materazzi had gone to Inter and then blown the title. So there's, a, there's, <laughs> there's, there's TV footage of Antonio Conte 
absolutely losing his mind at Inter and at Marco Materazzi, uh, calling them all the names under the sun on live television. He actually gets dragged away by Chiro Ferrara, putting a hand over his mouth. It's, it's really, really funny if you have any understanding of Italian at all, and even more funny now when the guy is the Inter manager. The following year, Juventus defends the title, reach another Champions League final, but lose to Milan in what's certainly the dullest Champions League final of my kind of football uh, football watching life, nil-nil after 120 minutes at Old Trafford and then a penalty shootout defeat with Del Piero converting his spot kick. Marcello Lippi then departs for the Italy job and Fabio Capello comes in, preferring Zlatan Ibrahimovic over Del Piero, who still scores another 14 times en route to yet another Scudetto. What was that period like to be kind of out of the team for the first time in, well, probably ever really, uh, since he'd arrived at the club and, and have someone preferred to him? The 2003 Champions League final, Pavel Medved was suspended for a foul on Steve McManaman. They, they changed the rules about when you can pick up your second yellow card because he picked his first one up in the group stage and the second one in the second leg of the semi-final and then missed the final. Um, mm. And I think that's a real, after the 98 one against Real Madrid, that's a real what if, because that Juve team played through Nedved a, a lot. He was the, kind of the magic in midfield. And without that, it, it really was no surprise that Juve were quite dull because they were quite dull apart from Nedved and Del Piero in most of the games anyway. And you take Nedved away, it really, really hurt the team. Uh, and then, as you say, Capello came. It, it was really difficult. I mean, you're talking... 1995, when, when Badjo left, was the last time Del Piero wasn't a first-team regular. Now you're talking 2004. Um, he, became the most, um, he became the player with the most appearances without ever playing 90 minutes that season in Syria. Mm. He, was subbed, he was subbed on or off every single game that he played. Uh, Capello preferring to go with Zlatan and Trezeguet together rather than putting Del Piero in there, which seems odd at best. Um, as, as great as Trezeguet and Zlatan are, I think that the, the idea of Del Piero with one of them is surely better than the two of those, ten, those guys together. And, and it really was a strange, strange relationship. And there's a, a, a really strong belief among the people around the team at the time, the people who know that, that Del Piero had all but signed for Arsenal uh, in spring 2006. He, he was fed up of Capello. He was fed up of being a sub. He, he wanted to try something different. And the, the idea of a, a move to England was was at the forefront of his mind and really, really close to, to being agreed by all parties as well. Well, I didn't know that. And I was about to ask you, was there ever any danger of Del Piero leaving? Because the relationship was described as strained. It was probably a good thing that he didn't because in January 2006, Del Piero uh, kind of uh, overtook uh, Giampiero Bonaperti as Juventus' all-time top scorer with 182 goals. Just talk to us about that because you obviously mentioned the kind of the relationship and the the kind of symbiotic, I guess, relationship between the two men earlier, two Juventus icons. It, it came to the fore again. He uh, he scored a, a couple of goals against Fiorentina to to break the record, and then Bonaperti came to give him a, a, a play on the field after the the, the next match as a, a commemoration of the moment that he became the leading scorer. Boni Perti was, uh, played with John Charles in the, in the 60s. He was originally a striker, but Juve signed um, John Charles and Omar Sivori, so Boni Perti taught himself to be a midfielder and moved into midfield. Before Del Piero, he'd, he'd made the most appearances and scored the most goals for Juve. 
So Del Piero broke both those records. Um, Buffon's now surpassed him in terms of appearances, but um, Boniperti was Mr. Juventus before Del Piero, really. He was he was a youth team player with the club. He played his whole career there. He became the captain, the number 10. He reinvented his style of play to let somebody else shine. And and uh, Omar Sivori would go on to win the Ballon d'Or playing in, his old, in Boniperti's old position. So it was clearly a wise idea. But he then became the vice president. And for, for Del Piero to to break his record, Boniperti said that he... he when he retired, he hoped those records stood forever and he never wanted anybody to break them. But he said that it was glad it was Del Piero because of the man he is, which is, really speaks a lot about their relationship. And, and again, the, this record was another chance to see the two of them on the field together, the hopes, the, the tears from both men, and it, another special, special moment. And a, a really huge thing because Boniperti was, was massive for Juve. He was everything. And then Del Piero took over that. And, and Boniperti said at the time that... Um, the, the best thing about Del Piero breaking his record was a whole new generation of Juventus fans finding out who he was because before that he was just an <laughs> old man who used to turn up and watch matches. So he, yeah. he, he actually thanked Del Piero for making him relevant again. Well, obviously this is a 90s podcast and we are venturing into the 2000s, but we can't overlook the fact that in 2006, obviously Italy lifted the World Cup. In Germany, Del Piero was a big part of that, although he didn't actually make a start of the tournament until the round of 16 win over Australia. But I think what certainly what I remember him for, and I think a lot of others remember him for, is that fantastic semi-final game against Germany uh, where he came off the bench and got the second goal to secure Italy's place in the final. Just talk to us about that uh, that win for Italy, for the country, and, and Del Piero's part in it, because obviously what was to follow kind of colours that summer as well. Yeah, I think it's got to be one of the... The biggest moments, hasn't it? The, the World Cup win, the first time for Italy since 1982. They they were fantastic in that tournament. And you, you mentioned that he he rarely started during that tournament. There's there's two things to that. I think that the first one is that I mentioned earlier about Marcello Lippi discovering the the importance of the the team ethic and making things work. He took six strikers to that World Cup, and every single one of them scored in the tournament. Yakinto, uh, Luca Toni, Pippo Inzaghi. Totti, Del Piero and Giladino. And at various times, they all started, they all played important parts, they all did their job. And, and that really is the, the epitome of Marcello Lippi, his career, his football, his ethos, everything. And Del Piero played a huge part in that. I think the, the, the best story about the 2006 World Cup, actually, for me, is, is told by Noel Gallagher, who became friends with Del Piero at an Oasis concert yeah. in Milan. Um, and then before the, the 2006 semi-final against Germany that you mentioned, Del Piero was sat in the hotel and um, Noel was sat with him when the news came out that Del Piero wouldn't start. And Noel said to him, well, it doesn't matter, you'll score anyway. And when you watch that goal and Del Piero scores, he runs behind the goal and he runs to the corner of the crowd. And he told the reporter after the game that he was running to celebrate with his family. But the reality is, Noel Gallagher was actually sat with Del Piero's family and he ran over to see to tell Noel you were right and that's what he's screaming when he gets to the corner flag he's telling Noel Gallagher that he was right for saying he would score amazing <laughs> it, it just well, it, amazing and it just it, it, obviously they were then went on to, to the final Del Piero scored a penalty and the, the biggest thing for that is the, the fact that in the Euro 2000 final Del Piero missed two huge chances 
before the game went to extra time against France in the final. And, and Italy obviously lost that on golden goal, uh, Viltard and Trezeguet. Um, and Del Piero was really blamed hugely for that and took a lot of flack in Italy. Sort of Saul Campbell, uh, David Beckham level grief for, for Italy's exit from the tournament. Everybody who didn't support you mm-hmm. blamed Del Piero. Became a real scapegoat. Um, and, and really got vindicated in 2006 by that goal in the semi and then a penalty in the final. He, he really did his job and, and helped play a huge role in that, a massive, massive win for a great team. Well, from a, an incredible high to an incredible low, obviously that same summer, the Calciopoli scandal reached its um, its kind of conclusion, I suppose. Juventus relegated to Serie B and stripped of, uh, it was three titles in the end, I think I'm right in saying, is that right, Adam? Two, sorry. Uh, and a mass exodus followed. Fabio Cannavaro, Emerson, Lilian Turam, Gianluca Zambrotta, Patrick Vieira, Zlatan Ibrahimovic all leaving the club. Uh, Del Piero, along with Buffon, Chiellini, Nedved, Trezeguet and a few others remained. And Juventus won Serie B. Del Piero top scoring with 23 in all competitions. Obviously, it won't be the trophy that he, you know, with the World Cup and the Champions League winner's medal, looks back on most fondly. But is there a kind of something quite charming about the fact that he stayed and, and won it and, you know, helped the club at its, its lowest ebb? It's huge. I think it's it's really difficult. But the, the Calciopoli scandal, which was a, a, a string of club officials across Italy using their influence to get the refereeing assignments that they wanted for the for the specific matches, it's often oh, match fixing, blah, blah, blah. But it was really the, the directors pushing for to influence the refereeing choices for certain matches um, to get better referees. Um, Juve were, were relegated, but Milan, Lazio, Regina, Fiorentina and um, Roma were all punished too. So it, it, it was a, a really... A, a really difficult moment. It was going on throughout the World Cup. There were 11 Juventus players in the World Cup final and obviously all must have been really affected by what was going on. Um, Del Piero immediately came out and said that he would never leave. Uh, a gentleman never leaves his lady is the way that he put it. Um, <laughs> he was then joined by the other guys who you mentioned. I think it's it's quite hard to, to put Giorgio Chiellini in there. He was only a, a youngster at the time but Pavel Nedved would won the Ballon d'Or a couple of seasons earlier. And then Buffon, um, Trezeguet, Camoranese had all played in the World Cup final and chose to stay. I think it's, it's huge, you know, and for Del Piero, especially as the longest serving player, as the captain, as the most recognisable figure at the club, for him to stay, it, it really helped Juve to, to overcome that, to do what they needed to do to get back into Serie A. Um, and then the fact that he was top scorer in Serie B, he, that season as a Juve fan, for me, it was fantastic. You know, you, you go to, to Juve matches, particularly at that time at the Dele Alpi before the new stadium. But even now with the, the new stadium, it's a very sterile atmosphere. Very, um, it's, it's like going to watch any of the big Premier League teams. You know, it's a little bit... It, it's not the football... You, you're a 1990s podcast... It, that you talk about atmosphere and colour and the vibrancy of football. You don't really get any of that at Juve home games. Away games, you get a little bit of it, but then in that Serie B season, seeing them going to, they played the first game away at Vimini. Uh, they played Mantova, Albino Lefe, 
uh, Avellino, all these teams, week in, week out. It was fantastic. And, and when Del Piero retired, he, he wrote a letter to Juve fans about the, the proudest moments of his career. Um, and in that list, he mentioned to score his 200th goal um, meant mm. so much to him. But to do it away at Frosinone meant even more. And I think as, as Juve fans, you read that and, and you remember immediately, oh, he stayed in Serie B. He played all these matches at tiny little stadiums. The, the, the Frosinone game in particular, the, the, the local hospital overlooks Frosinone Stadium. And you can see, if you watch footage of that match, you can see the building and the corridor going across. There's this big glass corridor in the hospital that overlooks the pitch. And it's rammed full of Juve fans with banners and flags jumping up and down and celebrating in the hospital because the ground was too small for them all to get in. And it, it, it really was like watching the, the Harlem Globetrotters doing it all. You know, it, it was this team full of World Cup winners, Ballon d'Or winners, Del Piero Buffon, Trezeguet Nedved, going around and playing third round FA Cup ties every week. You know, it, it was remarkable because big clubs like that just don't get relegated anymore, do they? And it's probably the last time yeah. one of the, the truly giant European clubs is going to play a, a, a second-tier game. You know, it's, it, it really is bizarre to look back on, but at the, at the time, it was, it was so refreshing. And, and to, see, to see Juve start again, to see a, a refreshed Juve, and then to see Del Piero in, his, in his, the best of his second season. I mentioned earlier he had a second peak. I think this season and the following season were definitely it. The, the more bulky... Definitely now a striker, not a, a Trecortista Del Piero. A, a deadly finisher in the box, not really running back anymore, not drifting out wide, full, solely focusing his efforts on, on playing in the box and around the box. He, he was excellent. I mean, he, he really was a leader that season. He, he was brilliant. He, he drove Juve forwards all the time. He, he, he didn't let the team get rattled. I mean, there was a lot of... Um, I can't think what the right. I want to say shithousery, but I think that's probably not the correct term to use. I think <laughs> shithousery is fine. Yeah, you know, from from those smaller teams, what else are you going to do? Yeah. The gap in quality is so different. The, the the guys are running around kicking everybody, and and Del Piero just rose above it. Nedved even got sent off that season for pushing a referee because he was fed up of getting kicked in one of the matches. He got a six game ban, but but Del Piero just kind of took it all in his stride, led the league in goals, and. Just a, a fantastic, fantastic player. Well, we'll leave it there, I think, for part three, and then we'll be back. Welcome back to you, me, and today we're joined by Juventus fan, football journalist, and author Adam Digby, and we are talking about Juventus legend Alessandro Del Piero. He was top scorer in uh, in Serie B and. Then the following season, Capocanieri in Serie A, the first and only player, I think I'm right in saying now, to do that in consecutive seasons. Paolo Rossi was the first. Del Piero is the only person to do it with the same club. This is why we get the experts on. Only one Scudetto after that period in his final season, 2011-12. Kind of fallow years, I think it's fair to say, for Juventus as they kind of rebuilt from that, what kind of followed in those in those years, and, and would there have been any justification in perhaps trying to you know eke out some more success with another big European club while he was still able to play at that level? Yeah, I think he would have been fully justified. I think Gigi Buffon would have too. You know, I think Juve were when they first came back up, obviously having that great core of players. 
they needed to make some smart investments and instead they went and signed guys like Felipe Melo and Momo Sissoko and Christian Paulson and they really struggled to because obviously the, the people in charge of transfers before that were all forced to resign after Calciopoli. So the whole club was trying to rebuild. But in trying to reinvigorate the squad, they really, really failed to, to do that. They brought Fabio Cannavaro back when he was way past his best from Real Madrid. Um, and they just made mistake after mistake after mistake, which eventually led to two seventh-place finishes and a, a, a complete overhaul there uh, with Antonio Conte coming in. But... Yeah, Del Piero, obviously, as he proved in that first season back, winning with Capo Cannonieri as Serie A top scorer, um, he, he, he was still excellent, but the team around him was really, really poor. Um, the, apart from Trezeguet, um, Pavel Medved was really fading. I think that the, his style of play really took a, a toll on his body. And those last couple of seasons before he retired, he, he was really struggling. The poor transfer strategy of the club really left a, them in a real mess um, and, and led to some real significant changes, as I mentioned. But yeah, he, he probably should have left, but I think it speaks volumes about the man he is that he did it. In 2010, broke Bonaparte's Serie A record for Juventus of 444 games, finished the season as Juventus's all-time top scorer with 250 goals for the club. And then the following October, it was confirmed that that would be his final season uh, used kind of sparingly by Antonio Conte at this stage with uh, other players preferred. And he later said that he was surprised that Andrea Agnelli had announced his exit. What Could he have stayed on longer? Or was this a decision taken out of his hands to avoid? I'm thinking something like the, the kind of Totti thing at Roma where it kind of possibly dragged on too long. He was able to leave with dignity. The first thing I would say is that that first summer, uh, 2011, Andrea Agnelli came back, they opened the new stadium and at the opening ceremony, um, they play, actually played Notts County because that's where you as black and white course, stripes yeah. come from. The, the, the whole stadium went dark and then when it lit back up, in 1897, UV were founded by some students at the university on a bench at the end of the mm. street and, and UV, in their infinite wisdom, took that bench and put it in the club museum. But on that opening day of the new stadium, when the lights came back on, the bench was in the centre circle with Boni Perti and Del Piero sitting on it. And they, they had a microphone and they spent 10 minutes talking about what Juventus means to them. And that uh, gives me goosebumps just talking to you about it now. But I think that, that way of christening the stadium with those two guys on that bench was just a, a phenomenal touch by Juve. And... And then it led into the, a, a fantastic first season for Antonio Conte. They went undefeated over the, the Serie A campaign, lost in the Coppa Italia final. They weren't in Europe because they'd been so poor the year before. Um, and the, the fact that you mentioned Francesco Totti and Luciano Spalletti, the spat that they had in the last years of um, Totti's career, is absolutely perfect because the, the decision to leave was... Antonio Conte's decision. He made it very, very clear he didn't want Del Piero back for another season. Del Piero's contract had expired and, and the club just decided not to offer him an extension, that it was it's time to call it a day. Del Piero would have carried on. I, he wouldn't have caused the same problems that, that Totti did. He's not as vocal as Totti, we know this, but I think just the presence of somebody who'd, let's not forget, as we mentioned earlier, took the captain's armband from Antonio Conte back in their playing days too. I, I think... 
Conte needs to be the biggest name in the room. And I think while he was at Juventus with Del Piero, I don't think he was ever going to be. And I think there was a lot of calls from fans for Del Piero to play more, calls in the media every time there was a poor performance, even though obviously they didn't lose in that first season. Conte is a, a smart man. He knows that the losses are going to come eventually. Um, and, and every time there was a poor performance, the media were calling for Del Piero to be given more playing time. The fans were calling for it constantly. It, it was a difficult situation. And it, it wasn't very dignified because Del Piero actually said that he didn't want to leave and that he was surprised by the idea. Um, and he went off to play for um, Sydney and he played in Mumbai as well, or Delhi, mm. um, and that, which is a shame. I think it, it would have been better for his legacy, perhaps, if he'd played a little bit longer. But we can all pretend that, that he didn't really play in the A-League or the, the Indian Super League. Well, still played his part in that final season, scored in the final day win over Atalanta to secure the club's 28th Scudetto and ensure Juve ended the season unbeaten, replaced with half an hour to go uh, and, and embarked on a lap of honour. And then in his final appearance, a 2-0 defeat to Napoli in the Coppa Italia final, he left the club as the all-time appearance record holder with 705 and all-time top scorer with 290, refused the board's offer to retire the number 10 jersey, saying, and I think this is very classy, I've really had so much that I would never want it to be retired. This way, every child can dream of wearing it, of one day wearing it. Um, talk to us just about that kind of finale, the kind of, wasn't the longest goodbye, but the long goodbye, the final Serie A game, the final game period, and how emotional that was, because... Yeah, as we say, we can overlook the time in India and Australia and sort of call him a one-club man. On that final day, he obviously Juve were about to win the Scudetto for the first time since 2006, and that was huge. But everybody knowing it was Del Piero's last game, he, he was subbed off. And in typical Del Piero fashion, he grabbed his warm-up jacket, went and took his seat on the bench and just kind of waved to the crowd like it was a normal substitution. And the, the ultras were just not having it. They, they started chanting his name from the moment that he sat down and they didn't stop. He got up to wave, they still carried on. He actually stood on the top of the, the wall at the front of the dugout um, and, and waved from there. And that wasn't good enough. They made him come out and go on a lap of honour. Um, Andrea Bartzali tells a funny story about that, actually, the Juve defender. He was the only outfield player who hadn't scored for Juve that season. Um, right. And in injury time, Juve got a penalty. And the... Everybody started calling for Batsali to come and take this penalty. Batsali very rarely ever went over the halfway line, so he probably had a nosebleed at going to take the penalty. But he scored, and nobody really cared because Del Piero was walking around the stadium doing his lap of honour. So he, he kind of lost his moment there, Batsali. But Del Piero, he, he went around, he did the usual thing that you see all the time in Europe, picking up a million scarves and hats and banners and flags and stopping for photos. He, he says that at one point... He pretended to stop and tie his lace because he couldn't stop crying, so he hid his face. Um, and then by the time he'd gone past the, the curb of Sud where the ultras are, he, he'd stopped pretending and he was just absolutely in floods of tears. And he was actually behind the goals, Batsali's penalty goes in as well. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was a great day. It was sad that he was leaving, but it was great that it, it coincided with Juve being great again, almost like, oh, I've done my bit. I, I stayed to go down in Serie B. Now Juve are back at that where they belong in first place. I can walk away knowing I've left them in a, in a good place. And, and if he'd retired that day, I think that would have been perfect. He, he wasn't ready and because it wasn't his decision. You can't really blame him for going on to play elsewhere. But I think the, 
the poignancy of, of Juve winning their first Foscal Chopoli trophy on the, the last day of Del Piero's Juve career is, is fantastic. And I think it, it speaks well that he walked away with such dignity, even though it wasn't his choice. Last two questions for you then, Adam. Firstly, where does Del Piero sit in your personal kind of pantheon of Juve greats? I have an inkling I might know the answer. Yeah, he's top, isn't he? You know, I mean, <laughs> per, my, my personal favourite Juve player is Luca Viale. That's a, a, a personal choice. But if you ask me who's the greatest Juventus player of all time, I'm going to say it's Del Piero. I think more appearances, more goals than anyone staying in Serie B doing everything that we've just discussed throughout this whole podcast, the, the whole thing all together. You can't then say that somebody is better, you know. <laughs> you, you can look at Platini, what he won, at all the winning three Ballon d'Ors in a row, winning the uh, Serie A Capocannonieri three years in a row, even though he played in midfield. That's phenomenal, yes, but Del Piero did it for 22 seasons, you know, it's... You can't mess with that. It's, it's untouchable. I think as great as Gigi Buffon has been, and he's surpassed him in terms of appearances. He's played more games, he's played more minutes, he's made more starts, all of that. He's still not as big a Juve legend as Del Piero because you mm. take all of that, all of his career, those two peaks, the, the staying, the putting up with being a sub for Fabio Capello, putting up with the way that Antonio Conte treated him, the way that the club treated him, and still being classic, right until the very end, still speaking so highly of Juve, still being around the club now, it, it, just all of it together, there's, there's really no denying the fact that he's the, the greatest of Juve greats. I think he's on a, a level by himself with a few players on the level just below, but he's mm. he's clearly head and shoulders above everybody. Well, you've recalled so many fantastic kind of anecdotes about Del Piero and, and, and moments in his career for us. What is your favourite Del Piero moment or, or memory? The first one is that just the, the memories collectively of those early Del Piero years that I spoke about earlier, about 97, 98, or probably 96, 97, 98 seasons, when he's, he's flying past defenders, he's curling goals into the top corner from outside the box, much like his goal against Germany in the, the 2006 uh, World Cup semi-final that we've discussed as well. That that actually goals from outside the box, those leaning back, curling it into the far corner. Thierry Henry did it countless times for Arsenal. Lorenzo Insigne does it all the time now for, for Napoli. Those are in Italy, those are called goals a la Del Piero. Um, because he did it more than anyone, better than anyone. And it, it just became a thing that if you scored that goal, that was a goal like Del Piero, a Del Piero goal. And and it still is today. The, the commentators on Italian TV still use that phrase now and he, he scored so many of those some absolute absolute brilliant ones against Dortmund in the, the Champions League and in the UEFA Cup though. if you Google any top 10 of Del Piero's goals they'll one of them at least will make the cut um, and then the the second one is a little bit more personal to me it's uh, early 2002 he He'd just come back after the, the death of his father. His, his father's funeral was actually on the Wednesday and this game was at the weekend against Bari. He'd not scored from open play for ages for Juve. He was really struggling with his injuries. Um, I, he came on and his first five or six touches were exactly like mine or yours, five or six touches after our father's funerals. If you, if you imagine what that would be like, if you, <laughs> I have, but if you've not been through it, if you think what I would be like trying to play football three days after my dad's funeral. That's what Del Piero played like. He looked like a, a normal, distraught, broken man. 
who, who couldn't control the ball to save his life. And then all of a sudden, late in the second half, he picks up the ball in midfield and he sets off running at the Bayern defence. And it's like 97, 98, Del Piero all of a sudden, just out of nowhere. He, he shifts through the gears, goes past the defender, gets into the box, little shimmy, a step over, chips the keeper and wheels away. I, I, I said he, his first touches were like after his father's funeral. His goal celebration was too. Uh, one of the Juve players, um, if memory serves correctly, it was Alessandro Burindelli, tries to grab hold of him in the box and Del Piero just launches him about six yards across the pitch, just not getting anywhere near him, runs off to the touchline, kicks over the advertising holding, loses his mind screaming and is then engulfed in a crowd of long-serving Juve players, the, the likes of probably... Not the most household names, but Alessio Tacanada, Gianluca Pasotto, guys who'd been there from the start with Del Piero, who knew him as a person, were close friends of his, just embraced him. And then he comes out of that and you can see the tears and the emotion all over his face. And, and for me, my own father died around the same time. I, I could feel exactly what he was going through. And to watch him live it out, I, I said right at the very top of the show that watching Del Piero was like watching myself grow up because he was roughly the same age doing it on the pitch. To go through that, such raw emotions out on the field and to deliver such a moment of absolute brilliance, a, a real reach back into everything that he made him great and to deliver something that he'd not been able to do for probably four years, to, to suddenly just bring it out at that moment, it, it's incredible. I mean, that goal is a, a great, great goal if you just watch it without knowing the context. But if you watch it knowing that, that three days before he, he buried his father, it's, it's incredible to see the, the, the will and the, the drive and the desire that he has and then the, just the raw emotion when he's finished. It's, it's unbelievable and that, that's always the, the biggest El Piero moment for me. And it, it's not the easiest thing in the world to talk about, but it, it deserves, if you ask me my moment, then that, that has to be it. Well, Adam, that's brilliant and fantastic stuff. We really, really appreciate you giving up your time today to join us. Make sure you're subscribed to You Me and you can get it via ACAR, Spotify, Apple and pretty much any other podcast platform now. And make sure you give Adam a follow on Twitter if you aren't already. It's ADZ77. We'll be back next week to discuss another icon of the 90s. Look forward to speaking to you then. Mm-hmm.